0: um i don't know how he got permission to do i guess it was a subscription thing i don't know if he shared it with the labels i'm not sure how how it worked for the legality of it but he decided he wanted to start a record company now too this guy his name was mike wilkinson yeah he was um an ad executive he made a lot he was a gay ad executive made a lot of money in advertising he you know he was in charge of the mooney aircraft it's like uh cessna you know um uh, it, small personal aircraft that people would buy, like, you know, little propeller planes. Um, and he did the advertising for that. And he worked, in, you know, on Madison and Forty 40th Street. And I'd go to his office and help him set up Import 12, which was the label he started. And uh, I set up the distribution before I set, set up Tommy Boy, because I didn't know what I was doing. Can and I, I just wanted to protect- learn at somebody else's expense, you Can know. I
1: expect everyone import 12 inches where we had man parish mm-hmm. hip hop bebop that's part of what he's talking about so he's talking, his about it from, right, he's talking about it from when he's working with the owner of this disconet import 12 sorry yeah. go ahead
0: correct so mike wilkinson yeah so mike wilkinson uh, was, you know good friend and i said let me come up and i'll help you set the label up and i just called people i called the distributors i set up distribution deals. I figured out what the amount was. I learned everything about how you get paid or don't get paid, um, you know, and pressing where do you press records and all that stuff. So I could do it myself when I'm ready to go. I knew I was going to be ready to go. And then in 1980, when I went to hear Africa Bambada spin in the Bronx and I see him doing that, playing the monkeys mixed with James Brown, playing Kraftwerk mixed with George Clinton. I'm oh, saying, wow. this is a total mindfuck. I said, "Do you want to make a record that sounds like this?" I didn't have a record company yet, <laughs> um, and he said yes. Um, so we went into the studio and made an eight-track demo in Manhattan, New York. Who was ago.
1: involved? Who was production part of that?
0: Um, Just he I- and I, and a guy that worked at Sam Ash in White Plains, who was the synth guy, came in and uh, with some synthesizers and stuff and played uh, some parts and. And my idea was to use five or six of the hooks from songs that Bambada were big for Bambada. Uh, they don't like craftwork, like, um, you know, um, what was the other one? Babe Ruth, the Mexican. Yep. These were like classic breakbeat records that were selling in that store and that Bambada actually made famous most of them. Um uh, I forget what some of the other ones were. They didn't all end up in the final thing, but we made uh, we made it. We made a tape, a cassette, and I played it for Arthur Baker, and he said, "I love that." I said, "So you want to produce it? You can produce it with me." Yeah. And Mike Wilkinson said, "Oh yeah, I'm doing this song called Vina Cava on Import Twelve with this guy named John Roby. Why don't you use him? He's great at synthesizers." Uh, you know, so Arthur and and John Roby went into the studio, and we all went in. And uh, to make this record that was going to be called Planet Rock with Africa Bamba. and I'd already released a record with Bambaataa with, with a year before called Jazzy Sensation that came out in '81. Was the, the first,
1: the first two, one or two records? So Jazzy Sensation were they were they pseudo hits at any
0: level, or just? Jazzy were- Sensation earned me enough money to pay my parents back. I bu- my parents bought lent me another five thousand dollars to start That's- Tommy Boy. Two years later,
1: parents, man. I know, you, man,
0: talking about throwing bad money after good. You know that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you. She's giving you more money. They're giving you more money. What are you doing now, Tom?
0: What so you after doing the doing? after that first record, I paid them back. So you know uh, that that one did thirty five thousand twelve inches. You know, and twelve inches were three ninety eight at the time, but still pretty profitable. I didn't have to make an album. It was really one song, two sides though. Uh, Arthur's wife. Saying on the other side
1: in a B at the start. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The, the cryptic crew was the group that did the B side. And at the time hip hop, well, it wasn't called hip hop, but rap records didn't get played on radio. Black radio had a no rap policy across the country, except for very few places. So we, we wanted to expand our chances. We did it on planet rock too. And we put, uh, you know, we, we put a version without a rap on the other side that had sort of singing on it so it could get played where dance music got played. You know, I still was, I was not a hip hop guy yet because hip hop hadn't been invented. It was, this was just dance music, a different kind of dance music. Right, slower. In, in order for me to get DJs to play it, that's how they had to do it.
1: The um, work replay that John Robbie did in Planet Rock, did you have to clear that right away? Or was that something that you did later on? How did that work in those days? Because this is all new, this sampling and not even replay or whatever at that time.
0: Uh, yeah, I had to clear the publishing because I didn't do any sampling. I mean, it was all replay. And um, I had to clear, I had to give up all the publishing on Jazzy Sensation to, uh, you know, the Gwen McRae version, you know. But, uh, today, I probably wouldn't have done that. I would have been able to negotiate a split of some sort,
1: right, but it's early days. so what about now, like with planet rock with da, da, da da with the craft work
0: Well, you know, I thought it was inter- and in, I thought it was an interpolation. I didn't think it was really you know there there's a lot of stuff in there, like you know there's a lot of things in there that uh are reminiscent of other things that Bambada was playing. And this was reminiscent of Kraftwerk. It wasn't an open and shut case. It certainly wasn't a sample. It was all played.
1: Oh, yeah, no, we know
0: that. And it was played. It was differentiated, but it had similar things in it. So Kraftwerk came after us. um, They did. With their publishing company. Their publishing company has the ironic name of No Hassle Music. Um, They gave us quite a hassle, and we ended up having to settle. Now, Arthur had the publishing. Tommy Boy didn't have the publishing on that, but we didn't want the record to get stopped. So um, all of that happened. It was really, uh, it was pretty exciting. But, you know, if you go back to Jazzy Sensation, yeah, it was a hit. I noticed that uh, Simon Harris is is online here and, and and he talked about how big it was there. It was big in France as well. There was a a significant DJ in France who, um, his DJ name was djtb tw- uh 821, which was the uh, 80, 1982 remix uh, catalog number of, of Jazzy Sensation. <laughs> so you took that as his DJ name. Oh, TV. You mentioned
1: you that, mention that, that catalog number. Somebody sent me a, a private message this week about that. Why did you start at the 800s with the catalog numbers?
0: 81, 1981. 81, first record. 81-1, 81 second record.
1: Nobody knows somebody knows that.
0: That's why they want to make sure. TB-811 was Cotton Candy, Having Fun. TB-812, the second record, was Jazzy Sensation. And that came out late in the year. So um, then TB-821 was the remix, the Chef Pettibone remix of Jazzy Sensation. And then, you know, it went on from there.
1: Planet Rock becomes a massive hit. How does your life change and record label change at that point?
0: Uh, I can hire more people. Um, I can, you know, expand the company a little bit more. I can sign more stuff, I guess. You know, at the time, I think Monica Lynch was the only employee. She was working with mainly with their um, newsletter. And so it was... Myself and her, and then some part-time people that came in to do other things, Um, and then um, we, as we got more money, we were able to hire more people and expand the business.
1: Okay, and then this is the other thing I'm thinking about. You know, you've created a whole street thing that the Fun House is starting to play these records. Okay, Uh, playing at your own risk. Soul Sonic Force, all that stuff starting to to hit the streets. Crossing into Radio 2. How does that change everything? Because you went from street credibility to now commercial level.
0: Okay, well, you're, we're leaving out a very important right. part in the timeline here, which make, you make, make me think of it really. Tommy Boy starts first record mid 1981, first releases. I'm doing the stuff with Mike Wilkinson the year before, and I released a record. On Tryon Park Records, I paid for it. I released it. There was another guy who had a label called Tryon Park Records. I used his name and logo and put the record out on that because in case I wouldn't be successful, which I wasn't, I didn't want it to hurt me. It was like a test run before I started Tommy Boy. It was called Let's Vote by Eric Nury, who went on to be an AR guy at uh, Epic or Columbia. Um, Harvard Kid, when, uh, a Black Voters Registration theme song, 1981. Um before before I re- released the first Tommy Boy record, very beginning of 1981, 1980, I'm going to see, uh, Bambara in the Bronx, but also 1980. There's a this is when the Billboard Disco Forum starts moving to two episodes a year. So we um, we said, you know what? We think that the Disco Forum sucks. They're ignoring everything new that's happening, and they're only talking to the same people over and over again. Let's invite and give a a voice to people who aren't getting heard people from other places and other cultures, different genres of music, and not just disco. Bill Wardlow was the guy at, at billboard who sort of made this definition of disco had to be four on the four. It had to sound like village people or it wasn't disco, you know? Um, and so to me, that wasn't what we thought. So I got together with Mark Josephson who had rock pool and we started the, um, we, we started the new music seminar in 1980 and it went parallel. We ran it exactly the same time as the disco forum was happening at the Hilton. We were a block away. It was just a one day conference, you know, $25, $29 to go. And, um, it was at the SIR rehearsal studios. in oh, wow. 1980, okay. Right. And it wasn't a moneymaker. It lost money, but it was a chance to, and we promoted it in Rockpool and Dance Music Report, so we had a pretty good turnout, and we had good people on panels talking about things that they would never talk about a block away, and people loved it. They got excited, they got turned on, and uh, the next year we expanded it and did it in a nightclub called Private, a nightclub on Eighty Fifth Street and Third or Lex Third, I think, and um, uh, that was when we had our first in nineteen eighty one. We had our first spinning exhibition where we had Jeff Breutman, who was working for Dance Music Report at the time, uh, given dem- demonstration of how DJs spin records and do overlays and all the things that DJs were doing in 1981. And then we had WizKid do quick cutting and show how people were cutting records in um, in the hip-hop world and, ha- and what was happening there. And he did, like, crazy stuff. And the room was packed shoulder to shoulder. There must have been 150 people in their room. and you know, Jeff Breitman was great, fine and everything, but when they heard Jazzy, when they heard the uh, WizKids spin, they just started to scream. It was like they'd never seen anything like it. And right. there was people already coming in from England this year by 1981. So in 1982, we expanded and went to the Sheridan and started the, the uh, DJ uh, battle for world supremacy. And then the year after that, we started to add the uh, MCs battles as well. So... The New Music Seminar is the place where everything cross-pollinated. And we put that all together and we promoted it to all of the readers of Dance Music Report and Rockpool and word of mouth through our team. And we took ads. We did trades with all the other publications to make it bigger and bigger. And really there we treated black music, white music, gay, straight, disco. All was one thing. All was cool. You know, everybody was accepted in the party. It was really great.
1: And it is true, everyone, because I learned a lot in those days before pre-internet, pre-everything. You used to get your dancers to report, and you'd be seeing a spotlight piece on a DJ, or a spotlight piece on uh, Richard Long, or whatever. uh, Alex Ross. it could have been anyone that he that. But they made things aware that you never had any chance to really. There was basically there was no library to go run to and go look at stuff. You know. This was the librarian, in a sense. Now, Tony Prince with DMC and all that, their model sounds like comes after your model.
0: Yeah, it did come after, and he came to the New Music Seminar and he used to advertise and take a booth and sell his things. But yes, his battles came after. Hey,
1: everyone? But but
0: also, our model for a conference influenced the origins, you know, of uh, the music of Winter Music Conference, of CMJ. Correct. Social Media Journal had a big conference in New York, and most important, South by Southwest. They they say it on the record. They came to the New Music Seminar. They invited us to do New Music Seminar South. Mark Josephson didn't want to do it in Austin, and it was going to be tied in with their newspaper there. And uh, they used to, the newspaper in Austin used to take a booth at the New Music Seminar. And they went back and said, let's do our own. And the rest is history there. So the New Music Seminar was a groundbreaking concept that was a hit record. It just exploded like wildfire and everybody. Still today, if you go to any conference in the music industry, it's modeled after the original New Music Seminar. Anybody who went during the 80s to the New Music Seminar, you know, they'll never forget it. It was incredible. You know, you meet people from all over the world. There was interesting people doing different things. People got you know, met people, started businesses with them, met future wives or husbands there. <laughs> Everything happened there. It was just people said, let's go into something with an open mind and meet people and learn things and they did. I mean, I tried to do it again. I did it again in 2009 November. through 2014 and I have to say it's disappointing. I went to the Mondo Conference in Brooklyn uh, last month and you know it's just hard people in this age think they can get all their information from instagram and youtube and and that personal meeting people isn't important and i think it's really sad you know um, i think there's so much to be gained from the intermingling of people face to face that can't happen online it can't happen with zoom it's not the same i
1: know it sucks
0: and I also see- uh, you know like there was more sex <laughs> Which is really more difficult.
1: Yeah, I mean. well, that was a lot. Yeah, that was the, the commiserating of meeting everybody and hanging out. And I
0: always friends. felt that's why the British came.
1: <laughs> it's the truth. You heard it, the truth from Tommy himself. Um, you know, you created a great business model. And that's, and it, and it holds its test even to today.
0: Yeah, we didn't create it as a business model, though. We created it as a solution you know to what
1: a I problem. mean. You know what I mean? A bit smile yeah. for everyone else to
0: copy. You're having a newsletter, we could see all of dance music. DJs, record stores, radio stations, record pools. We talked to all of them. Yeah, Jackie McCloy would report from, you know, LID, DJ, the Long Island DJ.
1: Sure shop, record pool, Bobby Davis report to you guys. Bobby Davis, Bobby,
0: Bobby Evil VIP. J- uh, VIP, uh, Al Pizarro, Uh. Yeah, we had so many. And, and Weinstein was, she her- was the one who was the only one who really didn't want to report. But all of the others, like what was the um there was one even Rickins, in Harlem. Bill Rick is Rick is record pool in Jersey. And I, yep. And there was one in there's one in Pittsburgh, Brian Harkins. And you know, I talked to all those guys. So they would if anything was happening, I knew about it. You know, I really I learned so much and I knew what was happening, so I felt comfortable releasing music because. I knew where it would go, if it would go, you know, and I could find out quick if it would go and I could run ads for free and the publication. And, you know, I knew what we had to do. I think- Simon, Simon Harris is mentioning uh, the revolving bar at the uh, the Marriott. They they had this rotating bar that would go around. We used to call it the vomitorium <laughs> or the roto vom. Yes. Because uh, if you sat there for an hour, you'd go all the way around 360 degrees. <laughs> Mm-hmm.
1: But here's the thing. Now, as Tommy Boy eighty one, eighty two, are you still involved with the DMR, or did you hand that off to them? No, and-
0: no, no. That stopped uh, decades ago. Um, but I have all of the uh, all of the published issues. I have copies of every of every issue, and I've digitized them so I can it's uh, searchable PDFs. Only in the last year and a half, so I can now find anything we wrote about, because it's a compendium of information about that era of the 80s oh, and, nice. and 90s that was the most critical era to dance music, arguably, in history. And, uh, you know, we wrote about everything. So if I wanted to look up a word, or a producer, or a songwriter's name, or whatever, you know, I label, what I could find out every time it was ever mentioned in Dance Music Report and, and read about it. You know, because I remember interviewing people like Cool Herc um, when I wanted to write about hip hop and what, what is hip hop in Dance Music Report and, you know, how it got its origins and talking to Bambada and talking to Cool Herc about the Bronx and how important it was. And really, you know, people who played in white clubs don't really understand because they have a different experience. The Black experience was totally different, the Latin experience was different. The gay experience was different. You know, the gay clubs liked 130 beat per minute music, you know, the black clubs liked 80 beat per minute music, you know, and then somewhere in between was everyone else, uh, you know. So it was just it's interesting. And, you know, certain clubs like four on the floor, really sort of predictable Disco so- others wanted more funk. So, how important was so? How
1: important to you was the Paradise Garage in a a variable of a record that was played there, close to the microcosm of New York City in that room?
0: Well, probably the most important because uh, it had more influence, um, but you know, than than any other club for me. I mean, it was first of all, it was huge, it was gay, black club. So, you know, so a, a gay club is not. A gay black club and a gay white club played totally different music. Totally, and, uh, there were white people. You know, Bobby Shaw would always be in the uh, in the booth. Yes. Um, you know, and and we would just sit there watch Larry Levine play and wondering what he's going to play next. And he would play records from South Shore Commission, uh, Free Man, or you know something like that. Records that most people didn't know about. You know, records that came from pre seventy eight that I used to collect before I started Dance Music Report. You know the ones I always beg Joey Carvella to spin instead of the hits he usually spins because he's always likes to get a cheap, fat, full dance for You be going
1: like this too, Come on! No, yeah,
0: come on! Play, play something a little bit more interesting and obscure.
1: Come on!
0: <laughs> play the Philly Devotions. Do something different. Yes.
1: And of course, I know Will Milton wrote Dance Interior played another big role, you know, because again, in New yeah. York, that's for you as, as a record label guy. You must be running around now with these promos pre to and breaking records. And right away, as we all know, a DJ starts to play a record, instant gratification, yes or no, that you have something that's going to yeah.
0: work. Certain, certain places could tell you that. It depended on their crowd. It wasn't even always true at Paradise Garage. You all heard the story about Tana Gardner when he played Heartbeat. He played it three times in a row. Nobody would dance. He didn't care. People were lying on the dance floor, you know. And he 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 kept playing it until people started to dance. He broke the record. You know. The other thing was that uh, Frankie Crocker from BLS would come to the garage and listen and find out about music there and put it right on the radio because he could see it exposed. And, you know, he realized he had to be in touch with what was happening on the street. And, uh, you know, seeing a reaction in a club to a record that had never been played before uh, or maybe only been played once or twice before and see it packed up the dance floor, it's such an exhilarating feeling. It's really why I got in the music business. You know, you you put a record out and to see something explode, you know, in, you know, 30, 60 seconds. Wow. Just amazing.
1: How important was Frankie Crocker's show in New York with you having music coming out on your label to getting it played?
0: Oh, really important. I mean, he must have raked in hundreds of thousands in payola a year, definitely. I mean, it was great. I mean, I heard all kinds of stories about, you know, people entertaining them. In fact, the, one of the great stories is um, Mel... Um, the the guy, the, the, there were two owners of, um, of West End Records, and West End was arguably one of the first uh, disco labels, dance music labels, because um, he also was an owner of Paradise Garage. And, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, Frankie Crocker would call and say, Mel, I feel like some fried chicken. Could you bring me some fried chicken? The owner of the label would go get him fried chicken and bring it to him in the ra- radio station. Another story, Frankie Crocker goes to meet him. We're at the three-star Michelin restaurant in St. Paul Vence, Le Moulin du Mougen. Frankie Crocker's going with the guys from Sleeping Bag Records. Will
1: Sokoloff?
0: Will Sokoloff uh, was there and uh, his partner at the time. And fr- yep. Frankie Crocker, he, I mean, it's already going to be, th- in those days, still going to be $300 a person for dinner. Right. But they let Frankie Crocker order the wine, and when it was done, he ordered a second bottle, five thousand dollars a bottle. <laughs> this is what when five thousand dollars is twenty five thousand today. Right. So that's you. That's oh, Frankie Crocker. Smoke. That's Frankie Crocker. I hope they got a lot of records played after that. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah,
1: twenty five thousand dollars. Holy smoke! I think I would have had a conniption. Can you imagine doing that now? Because we talk about meeting them, how expensive the drinks used to be. When you would all, you know, buy a... That's crazy.
0: Yep. Yep. But, you know, no Frankie Crocker, though, would, would do the same thing as Larry LeVan. He'd play, like, a uh, Calypso record by Mighty Sparrow. And he'd play it twice in a row. He'd play it all the way to the end, and then he'd play it again. Because he thought it was so important, you know, that people hear. And he'd break records. Like, nobody breaks records, you know? I think... I wish it was like that now. Well, that's right. So what you're asking for is Paola to come back, because actually Paola made it possible, you know, for West End to get records played that they or and Tommy Boy for that matter, that we wouldn't have gotten Salso
1: too, for that matter. All the labels. Roulette, Prelude. Look how many hit records Marvin Schlacht in them had.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Well, everyone, we're gonna have to call it because Tom has to go. I was already warned. He's got a roll. Yeah, and let me
0: just see. I'm I'm going to just look at the uh, comments. I want to
1: cry. I want to cry because Tom Silverman is a plethora of info, and people are probably shocked to hear yeah. all this wonderful. I know
0: story. it's way too much to to fit into one hour, but I think going over an hour is asking too much of people, especially my 92 year old mom. It's got a- considering she lent me five thousand dollars twice and paid for college and graduate school, which I didn't end up using. I got to go. Take her to dinner tonight. Is
1: he, a doctor? Is he, he should have been a doctor by this point. <laughs> letters there, everyone's there, hey, everyone's <laughs> thanking you. Tom, you please, please come back again.
0: And Yeah, I a- think we're just, yeah, Mel Sharon. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to talk about. There's so many stories. We didn't, we haven't even scratched the surface. The New Music Seminar, Dance Music oh. Report, and Tommy Boy. You know, it's there's a lot to talk about. A lot of fun things and weanings. You know, things you wouldn't expect that successes and failures breed. You know, you can learn from success, but you can learn more from failure. And you can learn also from the failure of others. Can
1: I just ask one major question before you go? What was the most successful record on Tommy Boy for you?
0: Well, fiscally successful was definitely Coolio, Gangster's Paradise. We just passed. I was just at his funeral a few weeks ago. <clears throat> it's been a tough year. Shock G died this year too. It's been a it's been a tough Shaq year G, right? Shock G.
1: Uh, Shock G, I'm sorry. Shock G, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Holy smoke. Thank you everyone for tuning but lots,
0: in. Lots lots more to talk about. Lots of stories, lots of things uh to say. And you know, do you archive this show, Lenny?
1: Yes, we have it. As everybody knows, it goes up on YouTube tomorrow podcasts on Apple Music, okay, our Heart Radio, and all you'll have it all. And you got to come back, Tom, again for the part two and give us more than an hour, please. Let's
0: let's let's ask everybody who's listening now to ask what they want me to talk about. And uh, how controversial I'll do a whole thing on payola if you want i don't care it doesn't we want everything they want everything from you because you're like
1: you know you're, you're like a college
0: professor here you're telling yeah. us. i mean it depends the people who are listening should be the ones who get to choose what we talk about Oh, right? i'm gonna
1: ask them i'm gonna say you heard it when we put this up again and i and i introduce tom again for another story again please put forward all the questions or topics that you want to hear that's most important to you all because we need him to tell us payola is a big thing People don't realize how important that was. That that brown bag was huge. Because
0: because radio programmers are like Pavlovian. They want to play records that sound like what they're already playing. Kind of like what algorithms are doing in Spotify and other places now. They they recreate the past and prevent innovation from happening. So if you have a freak record, like Planet Rock was, radio would reject it because it didn't sound like anything that they've ever played. But when they played it, it would light up, you know, the phones and then they realized they had to play it and it would spread from station to station. And, you know, you know, what do we call that now? We call that virality. But, you know, that's what everyone talks about going viral. Records went viral before there was an internet, before there were cell phones, records would go viral. And they went viral all the way back to Tommy James and the Shandells. If you read, read that book about Morris Levy and uh, Tommy James and how Panky Panky broke back in 1965 at a at a sock hop, which is a DJ uh s- session in Pittsburgh. Somebody played it and all the kids went crazy and started dancing to it. So it happened to be a radio guy was there and he put it on the radio in Pittsburgh and it blew up on the radio. And it that's what happens. And the the artist wasn't signed at the time. <laughs> it was it's an interesting story. Anyway,
1: plenty of talk everyone.
0: about We will
1: we will get you back, Tom. I okay. promise. And you know how hard it is to get Tom on, right? And he agreed. His dates, I got to put this in far in advance. So I will make sure when I announce, get all your questions together and I'll send it to Tom. And Tom will be ready to to take it from the part of payola forward.
0: <laughs> well, and we have to go back and forth too, because we skipped over a few things. YouTube, make sure you put it in the notes there, you know, asking people to. uh I will. In, in their comments, ask what they'd like to hear about. Okay,
1: on right. that note, everyone have a great evening around the world, a great day, and thanks you, Tom Silverman. We love you. Thank I'm you, and see fun. you all next week.
0: Thank you.